thanks to our sponsor, Go Well Consulting. Go Well Consulting is guiding businesses to the sustainable future. Go to gowellconsulting.co.nz to find an expert that will help your business navigate the journey. to How to Save the World podcast and um, today we've got a special treat. We've got Dr Mike Joy who's an award-winning senior researcher at the Institute for Governance and Policy, deep breath, at Wellington's Victoria University. So hey Mike, welcome. Hi. And your specialty is freshwater ecology. Yeah, that's that's been my specialty. I mean I've been teaching environmental science for a couple of decades as well at university and I'm kind of I'm seeing the bigger picture and branching out, um, but you know that's the core of my research. Yeah, yeah. that was yeah. your PhD thesis. Yeah, right. right. It was new ways to measure. Yep. Yeah, using um, bioassessment, we call it. So using the, the the things that live in freshwater as a way of measuring the health of them, rather than these kind of random things that we pick on to measure that are pretty meaningless. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there is. So uh, I've only. Um, I'm very new to this whole world, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> but when Waveney said that um, she had booked you on the show, I was, mm. I was very delighted, and then quickly went and did a lot of research. And it seems like there's a million things we could talk to you about today because you've just got such a breadth of um, sort of a huge career and and professional body of work and all these sorts of related areas. But the waterways is what we wanted to start with because yep. you've actually, yeah. you've you've um, not only been working in this area but quite bravely and fearlessly and you've gone up against when governments have been talking BS and <laughs> calling this them out. This is what I love about you, Mike. Is <laughs> <laughs> this this um, you're a scientist and a communicator. Yeah. Uh, I think you you know, you're one of New Zealand's most visible vocal communicators and you've got the science behind you. Yeah, but it's it's mostly um, anger driven. And so mostly what I'm doing <laughs> is responding to, to BS, yeah, you know. Yeah. So government and local, especially local government and big business um, talking BS mm. and it just I want to just get on with work but then I, I, I have to say hey hang on a minute that's that's mm. not right you know you're, you're spinning this whole thing so that's that's basically why and having that you know that role as a university academic um, we have that we have a our job is to be critic and conscience mm. that's what universities mm. are there for mm. not to be you know what mm. they've turned into just industry research instruments they were supposed to be there for the people to balance up that that one-sided you know industry world but yeah we're losing I mean under the the model at the moment I was I was at Massey University and it was extremely difficult to be at an agricultural university when all your research is showing the impacts of agriculture on the environment. True. <laughs> Even in, it, sorry we because it was waving and I went yeah. through what we wanted to ask you yeah. but um just quickly like <clears throat> even in New Zealand how much do you feel that tension in a university environment or just a tertiary environment where the research you're doing goes against the sort of community that the university's a part of? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, uh, I was in an ecology group, which was a small part of the Institute of Agriculture. So within my group, it's fine, we're all ecologists, we're all kind of on the same page, but then just across the hallway are all the ag scientists funded by Dairy New Zealand, Fonterra, um, you name it. Figuring out how to get better yields from yeah, the dairy Yeah, figuring out how to industrialise farming, basically. Yeah, and and you're going, oh uh, my God, you're yeah. killing the entire I'm saying country. We're, we're, going, we're going totally the wrong way here, boys. And and there was tensions when, um, at one stage, one of the regional, well, it happened a few times in different forms, but the regional councils saying to these guys, you know, um, we're funding your research and, and, you know, you better tell that 
guy to pull his head in because you know it's otherwise you're not going to get your funding kind of thing so it's having a go at colleagues yeah, so it you know, does wow. happen oh yeah even yeah, in New Zealand yeah. oh for sure so I mean, <laughs> well I was so lucky to have Steve Mahari as, as um, vice chancellor for most of the time that I was there because he was he was fending off a heap of this stuff from Federated Farmers CEO um used to ring every week he said he could almost set his clock by it you know demanding that I be you know sacked Helps. and you know yeah. get, get rid of him because he's really annoying us you know and and journos from rural um, media whatever they, they call themselves that they're just advertising but they they would say you know things no like punches, Mike. no well I mean they they expected that a university would have like a corporate statement they were just how can an agricultural university have someone saying bad stuff about industrial agriculture it just they thought it was like coca-cola or something where there was a mission statement and everybody followed it you know mm. as opposed to research yeah lead. that we're supposed to be that's the idea is that we all have different ideas and you know do our own thing so you've been actually getting hammered it's like the easier thing would have been to keep your head down what's making oh, no. you so passionate about this like what are the what are the drivers what's the what's the problem Oh, um, yeah, I, I, I often think about this, and it's some kind of um, overblown sense of justice, or you know. So I, I, I really, I hate seeing uh, a small number of people, organisations, or whatever, taking something from everyone else that doesn't belong to them, whether it's polluting rivers or, or you know, mining things that belong to other people, or commercially fishing away, you know, things that belong to other people. So it's, it's that kind of you know um, sense of injustice that I'm trying to correct yeah. all the time you know i think people on the other side of that would see it as someone who's getting in the way maybe putting a, a fish making a fish more important than a than a person in mm. their family that they're trying to support yeah no it tends to not be the person in the family it's the it's the you know the company and the profit that i'm getting in the way of you know and, and it's it's always short term it's like you know if i if, if we you know Put this mine down and it's going to make us some money in the short term in the long term you know it's going to cost all of us a huge amount of money mm-hmm. but that's always the thing a job job now versus you know no future so let's talk through um the thing that is driving or that has been driving this passion and sense of injustice which is uh the state of our waterways in New Zealand, which I understand from some of your research, is right up there in terms of the most polluted you can find in the world, and which just seems crazy to me in terms of my own non-scientific um, sense of clean green New Zealand. There are places I wouldn't swim, but mostly think, oh, surely China would have to be worse. Mm. Or yeah. Well, the trouble is that um, most of it's not visible. So I mean I think nitrates are a really good example like that of that we we have you know uh, in, in some of our rivers or the most of our rivers that run through intensive agriculture like the Waikato River and the Manawatu River and you know Selwyn River and Canterbury and a whole bunch of others that where nitrate uh, flux through those rivers is higher than almost any river I can find in the world. Wow. Um, purely as a re- result of nitrogen fertilizer which is, you know, like the story just gets worse and worse because the nitrate fertiliser is made from fossil fuels. So we make milk out of oil or gas in our case, um, a third from New Zealand and two thirds from the Middle East. We grow the grass. A little bit of that nitrate goes out with the milk, but most of it goes out in urine and ends up down in the aquifers and in the rivers and in the lakes and causes the pollution. How does it do that? Because this is one of the things I've stumbled on when yeah. you've been talking about it. Yeah, no, and I've always, you know, thinking about visibility. If it turned our rivers red, you know, we wouldn't have this problem. It's only because you can't see it. Yeah. And then 
Well, so there's a whole bunch of effects, but mostly it's you won't see it until summertime. And when it's the sun's out and the river flows low, suddenly algae will grow and it will grow really, really fast. And that nitrate's driving that growth. And then the nitrate, the uh, sorry, the algae that grows can be big, long filamentous stuff or whole thick mats on the bed of the stream. Um, that, that starts to suck the oxygen out of the water so you get these big fluctuations from day to night of oxygen levels for example in the Manawatu River where they've got dissolved oxygen meters going constantly and, and listeners can even go online and have a have a look at these things because they're real time telemetered onto the onto this um, internet and you can see in, in, in winter time they barely move the oxygen's pretty constant but then as soon as it's uh, warm and sunny the algae grows it starts to swing from 30% to 160% and most of our stream life can't live in that, so they die. So the fish need oxygen. Fish, fish need oxygen, like so all of us. They're literally suffocating as a result yeah, of yeah. the nitrates. So some of them, you, you know how you'll see your goldfish um, in a bowl gulp air off the surface? Yeah. They, they're adapted to do that, but most of our native fish in life can't do that, so they'll die from lack of oxygen. Um, and and then, how bad is it? Is it that only a few of the vulnerable species? or is No, it? we've got the highest proportion of threatened native freshwater fish in the world. So three-quarters of our native fish, of our 50-odd species, are threatened with extinction. Highest in the world. Highest that I can find in the world. I'm sure there's undeveloped countries that don't measure it, but of the developed world where this is done, you know. Three-quarters are looking at it. And that's that's from 20% in 1993, when when we first classified our fish back in the beginning of DOC. Um, That's gone up regularly every time since then to 74%. Now. So we've always been farmers, yeah? What, what's well, the... yeah, no, we have, but then we've never, we've never been so intensive. So really the last three decades, we, we went from fixing, we never, we never had nitrogen fertiliser until early 80s, and then it was only a tiny amount. It really wasn't until the late 90s we started pumping nitrogen fertiliser. So up until then, we fixed nitrogen naturally from clover. Our paddocks were full of clover. They fixed nitrogen from the atmosphere, to make them grow and supply it, you know, to the system. So, and how it always worked, but it was in the, I don't know, early 1930s or 20s or something like that, that the scientists Harbour Bosch discovered that you could make nitrogen fertiliser out of out of natural gas. And that started this industrialization of farming and pretty much drove the population growth that happened on the planet for the last, you know, 100 years was that suddenly you could feed so many more people because you're growing food from the past, from, from, from ancient history. Yeah, from, from the sunshine. There. From solar energy stored yeah, in fossil fuels. Yeah. yeah, so suddenly we're eating the past and mm-hmm. we're coming, we're coming, now we're in trouble. And so, so this is, and it's really, it's interesting and I hope this will be the, the changer that we needed. But it turns out that those high nitrogen levels in the water um, that we've allowed to happen over this time have a really direct human health impact. So... Um, that's what I've been pointing out recently in Canterbury. There's a couple of huge studies from around the world that the data's been gathering, the papers have been gathering over the last 20 years that nitrate, quite low nitrate levels in drinking water are associated with colorectal cancer. And so we have the highest rates of colorectal cancer in the world in New Zealand. And, 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 you can, and the highest rates in New Zealand are down in Canterbury. And then you look at the, the nitrate levels, which I've been doing, and the drinking water down in Canterbury. Because, you know, it's really, really stony soils. If you've been to the Canterbury yeah, Plains, they're just yeah. outwashed plains. Of, mm. The paddocks are basically rocks. And and you've had massive increase in, in um, intensification of farming there. Well, that was actually sheep and cropping. And do then you, you, then you, you convert it. 
there's Sorry? been research done into establishing a link between the nitrogen levels and increased yeah. rates of cancer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so this is this, the, the Danish study that came out this year is 23 or four years worth of data on 9 million people in, in Denmark because they, they had nitrogen issues like us from intensive farming, but they knocked it on the head a long time ago. Huh. But they have that long-term data. Being a rich country, they can collect all that stuff. Yeah. Massive study, you know, published in a top journal. And what it shows is that 0.87 milligrams of nitrogen per litre is the the level where a significant increase in the risk and then it goes up from there about three percent risk increase with every milligram well lots of people in canterbury are drinking water at two three four five Whoa. six milligrams which is and you're saying 0.8 is that yeah yeah, yeah. Is the, so that and and that turns out is really coincidental but that's close to the level where you start to get problems in the streams with with algal growth so the anzac australia and new zealand the australasian guidelines say that half a milligram um, is the is the kind of the trigger point and anything above that you, you're at risk of an algal bloom so it's really interesting and coincidental that that turns out to be you know about the limit where it starts to become unhealthy for drinking water as well mm. but you get canterbury where everybody's drinking water from groundwater that's where you start to see the results you know so you had like for the rest of the country we had dairy farming but nowhere near at the level so basically, if you just roughly in rough figures are thirty in thirty years, we only doubled the number of cows, but we quadrupled the the output, the the amount of milk solids produced. So, so what that per tells cow you was doubling. The so we only, yeah, of milk. No, yeah, per cow doubling. Mm, yeah, yeah, which means that is only achieved by heaps more outside stuff. So heaps more fertilizer, palm kernel. We're the biggest importer in the world of palm kernel. Is that a feed for the Yeah, cow? so that comes from the palm oil business and we're kind of getting the residue that's left from that that should go back into the Indonesian soils to grow more hmm. stuff. But, you know, there's a whole environmental nightmare around palm oil, but we're yeah, kind of involved absolutely. in that. So we we import the stuff. And so if you, even if you're just buying a bottle of milk mm -hmm. or a block of cheese or a pack of meat, uh, yep. which you wouldn't think had palm oil, and implicated yeah, in that. It has, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. That, so that, that's for conventional farming, though? That's for that's for industrial dairy farming, which yeah. is the way we do it. I mean, not yeah. all dairy farmers, but, but the vast majority of dairy farmers in New Zealand now, um, you know, the organic guys, and, and it's just standard everyday use to use palm kernel and a heap of, of nitrogen fertiliser and urea. For, but not for the organic guys? No, no, yeah, the organic yeah, guys yeah. don't, no. Yeah. And, and you know, um, there are some, well, you know, we can talk about this, but regenerative farmers or there's, you know, a whole kind of, a whole other world. But most farmers, and, and, and this is because it's like this industrial model that's a heavily indebted. So the latest um, Reserve Bank of New Zealand figures that came out that 35% of the dairy farmers in New Zealand have more than $35 worth of debt for every kilogram of milk solids they produce. Oh, yeah. So what that translates to, and this is from Reserve Bank of New Zealand, not me, is that they have to they have to get paid between $6.20 $6 and $6.30 a kilo to break even because most of their money is just going to the debt to those big four Aussie banks. So... And that's about the price they're going to get paid with Fonterra in trouble and announcing that they're not going to pay a dividend to mm. the farmers. Most of most farmers will only be getting two dollars, six dollars twenty, six dollars thirty, which is break even. So they'll be working for nothing on those thirty five percent of the farms. So in addition to all of the 
ecological yep. damage this is doing economically yeah. it's economically, not it doesn't even seem to yeah. be making sense oh, no. anymore and it doesn't all. it doesn't make any sense i can give you another example of how it completely doesn't make sense for two lakes in new zealand lake taupo and lake rotorua we have we you know local bodies government the whole process has decided that they're precious lakes and we don't want to lose them right so we in the case of Lake Taupo, they had a plan change there to really limit the, and so $90 million worth of taxpayers' funds went to pay farmers not to farm animals in those catchments. The same thing's happening with Lake Rotorua. We're underway with it at the moment. $40 million to pay, I don't know how many, maybe 10 or 20 farmers not to farm there. Whoa. And, and what we're You're paying, talking about welfare schemes. Yeah, exactly. It's corporate welfare. So what we're doing is you know, like I kind of like it in a way because it's actually a fence at the top of yes, the cliff rather yes. than an ambulance at the bottom. But say, we'll pay them four hundred dollars for every kilogram of nitrate that they leach, right? Which is many, many millions of dollars for each farm. So if, but if we applied that same logic to the rest of our rivers, and I'll give you the example of Canterbury, it, um, there's thirty million tons of nitrate lost from you know yearly out of dairy farming systems in Canterbury. And um, it's not my data; that's official data. If you multiply that by four hundred, it comes to twelve billion dollars. Is what, if we paid the same, if we if we applied the same logic to Canterbury rivers mm. and lakes as we do to Lake Rotorua and Lake Taupo, then we would be paying them twelve billion dollars to take to not to, to, not, yeah, to, yeah, not to pack up and go. Yeah, you know, to to have healthy rivers. But or in other words, we are subsidising them to the tune of twelve billion dollars right. to carry on farming. Yeah, because that's so, the value to us. Yeah. So if but if we're not we were we're to... not paying it though. This is the no, thing. You yeah. know, so so all we're doing is leaving it to our kids. You know, the legacy's just building up in nitrate, building up in rivers, you know. So no one's paying it. Is there some sort of intractable problem or are there solutions that you can think of that are actually pretty and actually to, t- to tack onto that as mm. well before because we do want to talk about um uh what's the term perma culture yeah, yeah. And, and that um different styles of farming but mm. before we do mm. uh in addition to what wave just said mm. how different is organic dairy farming to yeah. the traditional intensive farming that we're used to um it's kind of uh it's hard to describe it's 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 a bit better it's still bad, but it's a bit better. Um, you know, it's less bad, <laughs> is, is what I'll say. You know, it's still it's still By got lots much? of problems. Oh well, it depends. The the actual, you know, this is always the trouble. Is how do you, how do you, how do you define something, right? Mm. And so, so, it's like you hear this term regenerative farming or bio farming. It's a bit like tacking eco onto your brand, you know. It doesn't actually mean anything, you you know, unless you have some kind of certification system, which is what the organic guys do have. Yeah, and it's quite and there's the bio grow. Yeah, yeah, those sort yeah. of things. Yeah. But they, so so to meet those things, uh, sometimes bad things are done. You know, so you can say, oh, we're not allowed to use an antibiotic, so we'll use a metal instead, or you know, so, so um, you know, there there can be risky downsides to really strongly legislating about how how to meet something or not meet it. So so organic farming is, a, is, a, is, I'll go as far as to say, it's a lot better than the average industrial farmer at the moment. But then there are some non-organic regenerative farmers who are doing just as good a job, you know. So it's, um, and, and we've just had a, um, in the newsroom today, Peter Fraser and I wrote a, um, a, a, a article where we show, we, we point out how clearly, we have known this for such a long time, 
that farmers can make more money by doing less. You know, they I make more profit. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, so in this, this is the, the example we gave was of the um, the well, Lincoln Dairy Farm. They did it back in 2012, 2013, but there's a heap of other farms that have done it as well, where they, they cut back by about 15% the number of cows. They um, increased their profit by 40%. Their per cow production went up from 400 to 500 kgs. So you Cow? just... Oh, it's just because it's it's... A farm is a biological system, right? If if we had a little business here making, I don't know, clothes pegs, and as long as we had a market, we kept on buying more wood to make wooden clothes pegs, you know, there's this nice linear relationship where we make more and more money. But in a farming system, they're biological. So you put more stuff on, you, you win up to a point. And then it plateaus, then right? Then diminishing returns. Yeah, diminishing returns. So but you you're spend... stuck and you have to keep well, doing yeah, it. Well, yeah, but you are stuck in this case because the bank has invested so much money. You're, you know, you're mortgaged up to your eyeballs. The bank sees every dollar that goes that doesn't go to fertilizer because they don't understand this relationship is potentially a loss for them, you know, or the loss of the land value because there's a big difference between a lot of farming is done for land value, for capital gains, but like Auckland housing market, it's done for the capital gains are there, not the, the, the rental income is incidental it's the capital gain that you're living on what's very much like that has been like that for farming in new zealand as well which in the housing market and i Mm. imagine it's probably the same in farming is a very bad and disruptive economic uh sort of paradigm to be working in because it's not actually a productive good that's helping the country or the economy it's It's great for banks yeah it's an (laughs) inflated figure on a page until it isn't that's right and then you get a a recession or yeah, and, and I think, you know, we're going to see that. We are seeing that already with Fonterra in trouble. And, you know, that's, it's 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 been ridden hard for It can only last decades. so long, right? Because oh, yeah, that value yeah. is only that value until people decide that the land isn't actually worth that amount if it's not being a productive yeah. good where there's a regular output that you can see. Yeah. So how, to your mind, I don't mm. know if there's research on this, but... Mm. How much are we over farming past that plateau point that you're talking about? Oh, it will totally depend on the farm and where it is. Right. So that that Lincoln, that was at the hardest end of the scale because that was at that one of the top, you know, top um, top tier kind of ranking of farming in terms of how intensive it was. Yeah, yeah. So right. so you you know, and and every all the systems are perfect kind of thing, and the and and so having a win there is really hard. There's some other ones that are much easier to get wins, and you can get much bigger wins than right. that and and you know my my colleague or friend Alison Jews who's um, environment manager for Landcorp she's worked with a heap of farms in the Waikato and she has you know spreadsheets on all of these farms that she's been working with and you go across and the most profitable farmers have the least impacts you know there's a really strong relationship between you make more money by by and by putting less on and therefore it's not a linear thing you put yeah. you put a 10% less fertilizer on and you get like 40% less leaching you know there's that mm-hmm. there's a lot of gains to be had cuz it's exponential worse for the yeah. environment once you get past that, that so how can, biological sorry. stuff works like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. Yeah, that yeah, it's not because I think we tend to think of everything mm, as having linear, a one-to-one yeah, linear relationship, yeah, but mm. biology doesn't There's lots of trend like curves that. and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> plateaus and things, yeah. yeah. How can people, uh, like, say if you're just shopping in the supermarket or maybe you've gone to your farmer's market or whatever, wherever people are at mm, in terms mm. of what they're prepared to do, how can people connect with what's going on in those farms in a way that they're feeling that their purchasing is supporting the, the farmers who are doing the right things? 
Okay, well, I mean, I guess the, the easiest thing is organic, right? I certified. Mean, you, you certified organic, organic you yeah. can trust that. But, I mean, popping up all over the place. I mean, I've just been in Raglan for the last couple of days giving that talk to, um, there. And they've got a local milk supplier who supplies milk and bottles delivered to your to your letterbox. And it's a local farmer I who remember farms. that. That was my job when I was a kid. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. put the milk right. bottles out. Yeah, so I mean. <laughs> it's only recently gone away. Yeah, but, and then that's a local supplier that they all know. And he does, you know. So they, locals are good. Like, local. Because you know. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, we just can't. The reality is of, of Fonterra, of the brands that are in your supermarket, they're, they're maybe 2% of Fonterra's production. I mean, we could all just refuse to buy Fonterra milk tomorrow, and I'm sure they wouldn't even notice it. Wouldn't must have been. No, no, they would just carry on because it's nothing. I mean, it's mostly it's mostly export. A huge proportion of it goes as milk powder, sort of some nameless commodity that ends up either replacing breast milk or, uh, well, both, uh, and um, going into uh, additives, into food products, mostly junk food, you know, bars, chocolate bars and some vinegar chips. I'm yeah. not allowed to eat them anymore because <laughs> I went vegan recently and found out they've got bloody milk powder oh, on for really? the flavouring. Is yeah. that right? It yeah. was a real blow. Oh, well, that's well I mean. actually, there's some brands that yeah. are all right, but yeah. I've had to find them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, that's what I mean. So, you know, I get really annoyed when I hear this, oh, but we're feeding the world, we're feeding 40 million people. How is, you know, replacing breast milk feeding people? That's not feeding people and neither is junk food, you know. We've got, you know, two of the nearly 7 billion people on the planet about 2 billion are, are obese and overweight you know we've already got and, and unhealthy because they eat crap food you know and at the other end's a billion that are undernourished and and so you know it's it's just false to claim that yeah it's not an people. issue it's not an issue of the amount it's a no, distribution it's a, yeah problem. exactly but I, I mean it's quality we, as well we were yeah. talking about this when we did our greenwashing episode how it can sort of be a company starting with the premise of I want to make some money, which is the usual place that people start, and then working backwards from there going, well, how can I justify this? So there's mm. got to be some good way, good sort of spin, good outcomes, good aspects of what I'm doing, and and it's it's easy. It's yeah. so easy to spin oh, God, something yeah. about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't say much about where you're coming from, ultimately. No, and there's very few people he, who have the you know the time and the ability to be able to critique what's going on either. You know, um, really frustrating to hear on the, on national radio this morning a discussion from the Environmark people, which belong to the New Zealand government through um, Landcare. Um, you know, talking about certification for companies for like carbon neutral and things like that, and and just uh, crazy they just seem to get captured by by the industry because here was this person from Environmark trying to um you know protect this idea um that uh you know for say an oil company or in new zealand and, and they say oh we're carbon neutral what it means is that their you know their cars that they run around and in their little office is carbon neutral not that they're not planes, the planes or yeah. the or the same yeah. with oil companies. You know, their you know their cars and their offices neutral because they, I don't you know they use recycled paper or something. You know, these stupid little things like really? that. Really, so, so they you can, get can you can get to use that certification mm. just by basically the office. Yeah, use that's what it's all about. It's use. just you know, and they'll just ignore the really big thing, the core business, the core business. Yeah, it's just about that. how you run the business, not the business. You know, right? And this and yeah. this person from Environment. Defending that's like, that's that. pretty freaking scammy, man. Like, <laughs> I, I would never have no, thought that. I know. But what if somebody says, okay, I'm an oil company, Mike's Oil, yeah. and I'm carbon neutral, 
Well, then you surely going to go, yeah. oh, no way. I just <laughs> you know? assumed because I hadn't paid too much attention about what companies have it, but I assumed mm. they were offsetting somehow. Yeah, no. Like, or, or, I mean, you know, especially in New Zealand or something, I yeah. just assumed they were planting. Well, maybe we should have another discussion sometime about offsetting and I'll talk to you about the reality, yeah, the reality yeah, of it. Yeah, because it's a big, complicated well, it's a big, it's, I, Just, just in, in advance it. of that... It, just think about it. There's the there's the carbon cycle on the planet, the biological carbon cycle. Plants taking up carbon and then they're being released when they break down and when we eat them and all that kind of stuff. All of that is biological turnover on the planet. We could replant every tree on the planet that ever was. We're never going to account for one, not ever was, but could be on the planet. We're never going to account for one kilogram of fossil carbon. All we're doing is replacing what we've chopped down. The fossil carbon was trees and the yeah, biological cycle that yeah. happened over millennia. Mm. So we aren't, we're, you know, we're just completely kidding ourselves that trees are mitigating fossil fuels. They do not mitigate in any way fossil fuels. They take up carbon, but they're only taking carbon that was released from the cycle at oh, the time. The whole a thing's a point. scam, you know. But but Mike, shit, <laughs> 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 damn. Um, <laughs> It's, we've still got to – well, do we have to? I don't know. Mm. But it, it, for me, I'm always coming back to – like if we just unpack something like mm. that and mm. leave it there, then the the end result is that people do nothing. No, no, because, I mean, totally trees are great. The more trees we have, the better. Just There's to clarify. There's so many reasons why we should have trees and why we should support growing trees and all that kind of thing. But, but I, I, I just don't kid yourself that you – Go for your holiday to Europe and plant some trees is going to in oh, any I'm way you. mitigate yeah, you're that. You're still you saying know? just fly yeah. less people. Well, yeah, that's right. We've got to stop that. You know, we don't kid yourself that we. I mean, this is the big myth that 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 we we think that we're going to carry on with life as it is at the moment, only we'll just do it with renewable, and that mm. ain't going to work. You know, and and or mitigating through through capturing it with trees. That's we need to get over that because as long as we have that belief, we, we will just carry on doing what we're doing, you know. So we have to, you know, I feel that it's really important to, to, to knock that down and get people to understand the reality. Thanks to our episode sponsor, Kokako Organic Coffee Roasters, whose team is steadfastly committed to their fair trade, organic and carbon neutral certifications, which not only allows us to trust that what they say is what they do, it also makes this cup of single origin Colombian coffee I'm sipping on taste that much more delicious. You can find them in the coffee grinder of some of the best cafes and restaurants across New Zealand. Or you can jump on their website to sign up for a subscription for home, shipped in a home compostable bag. Just go to kokako.co.nz. Should we start talking about um, permaculture? Yeah. I love permaculture. I don't even know what it is. Who would like to have a run at explaining to me <laughs> succinctly what a permaculture is? Well, I, I mean, I just will start at the counter, which is the opposite, which is monoculture. And so, you know, back to Canterbury again or Waikato, where it's just endless ryegrass paddocks. Oh, that's a monoculture with, um, you know, with cows on it. Um, and, and there is... You know, whenever you have a monoculture, you have to use pesticides, you have to use fertilizers. You, you know, the natural system is naturally really diverse and permaculture is it's trying to imitate a really diverse ecosystem where you have food at multiple levels. You have trees, you have, you know, ground, you have mid mid range and you recycle everything the way that 
nature recycles everything. It's, it's so you're saying that um, if we want to farm a crop without it getting diseased, uh, there, there's kind of two options. One is to throw lots of petrochemicals at it, mm, the herbicides, mm. pesticides, because they'll knock everything back. Um, and if you're not going to do that, then people are left, especially like, say, home gardeners, they're left mm. going, oh, well, if I don't spray it, then they get all these diseases. And you're saying that permaculture is going, hey, there's another way, and that's yeah. imitating nature and give, having this diversity because that's where the strength comes from in nature. You go into a native forest with its thousands of different types of things and there's no diseases yeah, as such. You don't need yeah. pesticides yeah, in a exactly. natural system. Yeah, exactly. You don't need a yeah. pesticide to you know, work No, it nothing. Through. Yeah, so I mean, that's yeah, that's the answer. And, and it's like you said, well, not using, pesti- you know, not using petrochemicals because we're not going to have that option very soon. So that's why you, you can see it as a choice now. And we, you know, that's sort of basically what it comes down to. We choose or we wait to catastrophe when we're forced to do it, you know, that way. So, At what scale does permaculture work? Is it how, um, so how easy is it to do in the garden? Mm-hmm. How easy is it to do at a commercial dairy farming level? Well, the thing with, you know, dairy farming doesn't fit with it, not, you know, not the way we do it at the moment. So we think of a farm being our dairy farm, right? It would... Well, I guess that's a monoculture. Yeah, right that's there, a monoculture, exactly. So, so, yeah. But it could be an element of what people yeah, are doing. Yeah, and, yeah, and 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 that's the way it traditionally would have been. And and I, you know, so what, the trouble with trying to convert from a system we have at the moment, we have, you know, I think the average dairy farm is 150 hectares or something like that. I mean, it's a huge area and a massive investment in the dairy shed and all the infrastructure and that kind of thing. But a a, a, a you know a permaculture situation, you would have way way less cows and all these other things going on the farm. But then when you think about that, that you can't, the trouble is, and, and I've had this so often with, you know, talking to farmers in New Zealand, and, and it's it's natural that all they know is dairy farming, right? They they grew up with it, their parents did it or whatever, or they've got into it, and that's what they know. You can't expect, well, they, I mean, some people are really good at doing multiple things, but generally, you know, arborists are really good with trees, and beekeepers are really good with bees, and, you know, yeah. um, you know, there's specialists. And so, so what traditionally how it would have worked and you know you can you can see examples of this still going in eastern europe where um you know a lot of the stuff is shared so the beekeeper has hives over everybody's farms and shares it around and then the butcher goes around all the farms and does the you know the butchering and 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 you know the the you know the ex you know so it's it's about communities and communities are crucial to these you know um very diverse systems as you have you have um you know human communities that are diverse yeah. as well and their knowledge to be able to run these things you know so how from i i get um it sounds utopian to me yeah, like yeah. really beautiful well, it is it but is are there examples of of permacultures um maybe around the world or even within new zealand that are being successful at the moment and does this seem to you as someone who's studied this and mm. you're not an economist but it seems like mm. you're pretty well versed in the economics of these mm. issues how viable does this seem to be as a place for us all to start moving into on well, a large scale? Well, I mean, the trouble is at the moment is that we subsidise the bad stuff. So when you talk about, you know, is it economical to do it? No, it's not. Because how can you compete with a system that's being subsidised to be allowed to pollute rivers? Then, you know, if we even the balance sheet and charge, you know, use true economics and charge those dairy farmers for their nitrate losses, then they wouldn't be dairy farming anymore. And then, and then it would be viable. I, I think the, the, thinking of a bigger picture thing for New Zealand though, is that the problem is that 
we, we only have you know four is it getting close to five million people now um you know a tiny proportion of new zealand farmland could feed the five million people easily mm. you know i mean it's it, it, we're an export-led or we're told we're expert it's actually about three and a half percent the dairy side of things about three and a half percent of our um gdp is is dairy you know even what? though they say the backbone wow yeah, so it is actually tiny. It's about eighteen billion dollars, which is just three percent or something. Percent's not, it's oh, definitely know, it's not, not the picture that we're given. But no, if, no, it, you know, I mean, it's a very that, that backbone thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we've all heard that. Considering yeah. everything wow. is a slice of the pie. Yeah, yeah. Then it's, it's, it's important, nothing. but but then okay, so we're going to be dependent on, you know, that the impacts of that if it was paying its way. But so we we have to if the and and the the whole world is going to want. That, well, those that can afford it, I'm thinking about, are, are thinking the same way around buy local, buy healthy. We don't want junk. You know, the world's world's is moving in that way. Okay, so we're on the other end of the world completely dependent on fossil fuels to get our products. Yeah, out New Zealand's of this not country. buy local, is it? And, and we're well, so the, the other big part of our you know income is tourism, which is also completely dependent on fossil fuels and cheap flights and all that kind of stuff. And so. You know, you can see some major issues. So you can see on the plus side that when things get really tough, we, we're, we're lucky and we've got rain, we've got water, we've got, you know, soils, we've got a lot of stuff going for us in that way. But when it comes to the big economic side of things, then we have to get our dependence off, you know, export lead. Yeah. So yeah. to take your point that yeah. if we do take subsidies, which is sort of distorting the picture mm-hmm. of how mm-hmm. economically viable the current system is. Yeah. Um, do you? Because I know there seems to be a lot of solutions in sustainability and yeah. in environmental awareness circles that are really good, but they sort of tap out when you scale them up to a certain. Yeah, point. yeah. No, well, I can. I was going to say um, there are Canadian um, examples of they call them um, closed loop farms, and they they do have dairy in them. But what that means is they don't import any fertilizers. They run and you know on on themselves kind of thing. They'll have uh, lots of them have methane digesters, so they'll um, they'll take the waste and turn it into gas to power machinery that they have on the farm, and that's wow. that's really easy to do. Oh, they're just the waste material from animals, right? So oh, we've we got it here, yeah. There's like a suction cap on their butt. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, so it all ends up in a big in a vat basically, and and um, anaerobically the methanogenic bacteria break it down and give off methane gas and then you can we we, we had working examples here um Invermay research was, ran the whole farm on biogas that's the other term for it is biogas so you can get energy in that way plus you know renewable energy so you can have these things on a big scale they they have hydroponic um vegetables and you know they supply multiple markets and that so there are working examples i mean the the, the thing is that it's you kind of, and this is where we come. I mean, I'm on this environmental work, working group with um, Landcorp, and and this is kind of the circle that we go around. There, you can come up with much better ways of producing food. We looked at, for example, in Southland, where all that trouble is at the moment over the cows being up to their necks and mud, and oh, that we know about that yeah. issue for a yeah. long time. So we we talked about okay, let, so let's cut out the middle cow and make oat milk or wheat milk because that's what would, the crop that was grown there up until dairy took over 20 years ago. And and that was great. You do the sums, way more protein per hectare, way more production, way more everything per hectare without the cows, way less water use, 
fantastic, you know. But someone else has got to set up the plant and the infrastructure right. to make it, and the and the supplier so can't that initial do that. Outlay. And, the and then, you know, that, well, just as a kind of a, a cautionary note here, what we did find is that the groundwater, the other thing you need to make good milk, of course, is clean water. And already the groundwater was at, had really dangerously high levels of nitrate in it just from that, you know, short time mm. that intensive farming's been happening. So that kind of, you know, put the knocks on that a bit. Do you but, ha- yeah, that's the thing. Do you happen to know what new zealand is are we trending away from dairy products at all in the, terms of our consumption internally no i don't know because it's such a tiny part of our production that right. i don't see the figures you know mm. so um you know i've seen a massive growth though i know that uh, internationally the the uh, plant-based milks are growing faster than than the, traditional so it, um competitively priced as well yeah like you yeah. can get soy milk for um the same or cheaper sometimes than, yeah but than the dairy. trouble with cheaper is that generally it's cheaper because they're not paying the costs you know that's the trap that we fall into still got to look for organic yeah well I, so i'm really there's worried a weird, there's yeah. a weird brand and i just i'm hoping i've mm. got my fingers crossed that they're working at scale which is why it's so yeah. cheap and i forgot the name of the brand but they they've, they've got organic certification right. um and they make a whole range of products which yep. are really sort of well uh um regarded as being mm. pretty sustainably farmed and they're yeah they're like it's it's often two bucks fifty for a litre of um, soy milk from them at the supermarket so I'm hoping it's (laughs) that they've gotten efficient and they're doing it at scale and that's yeah well I mean that's right I mean what we pay for milk is at that price because we're trying to compete with international markets right so uh, there's a really good reason why I guess plant-based milk could be a lot cheaper but I did want to have a word of warning here that you can get rid of cows right and I mean, a really good example was close to where I live on the Kapiti Coast um, in, um, near Wellington. Is There's a big uh, vegetable growing area nearby called yeah, the sort of area of Horofenua. And there are, in, there are big intensive market gardens there where the leaching of nitrate is higher than dairy. Wow. So you can do anything badly. You yeah. industrialize yeah. anything. Yeah. If, if any system relies on lots of outside stuff, then it will leak lots of stuff, you know. On that note, what do you think the most important thing our listeners could do if they were going to do one thing? Mm. No, I don't mean like um, uh, a particular tip. I'm meaning mm. more a principle, like a well, a principle. My well, the first one I would by. say would live by was have less animals or no animals in your food. Mm. You know, get the animals out of your food. Um, I, I've got this great graphic that I use in my that I'll be using in my talk tonight, but I don't know if you've heard it before, your your listeners. If you take all of the mammals, start with the mammals on the planet, and you have, in one hand, you have all of the humans and all of the animals that provide food for humans and our domesticated pets and things, and and the, the weight of them on the planet versus the weight of wild animals. And it's 98% us and what we eat and 2% wild animals. So, you know, that's how much we dominate the planet and that's why you know it's no surprise to me that, that is mind-blowing isn't that, it you know that we have it's fi- kind of sickening too it, well, it, it is, feels yeah. greedy and it is. just sort well, of it is yeah i mean we don't see it you know we just we just no, i don't know i'm gonna say we the royal we we go to supermarkets and buy stuff and have no connection with the land or where it came from or anything like that mm. so that's how those 
that can happen is because people mostly aren't aware of it. Yeah, like people, myself included, uh, you hear about all the statistics mm. about mm. In- extinction particularly and um, what you were saying before about the waterways and uh, it's so invisible. You mm. can still look out the window and see the blue sky and the green grass or whatever and, um, and then I was thinking, well, yeah, but how many can I, how many types of insects or birds or trees even in New Zealand could I even name like it'd be like maybe 20 or 30 or something and we're talking mm. about thousands like and thousands of yeah. species that are threatened about or 10, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so it's like no wonder we don't see it when we were actually yeah. only really conscious of about sort of maybe 20 to 30 yeah. species we, we were talking before we started the record about um, sort of d- different schools and education systems and stuff it seems like to get a viable solution at the scale we needed in the sort of time we needed like we need to change the curriculum mm, at mm. school and just yeah. educate an entire generation about yeah. how screwed we are <laughs> and then sort of either fire them up to get angry like yeah. you are mike or slightly despairing like i am or hopeful like waveney is <laughs> well, all, all roads leading hopefully to some um some large-scale solutions on yeah this. I, I think that the thing is that um that people um need Hope and to, I'm not. I don't kind of don't like hope. 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 <laughs> no, no. I just mean that. Just Mike's I, dress I, completely in black right now, everybody. Well, you know, like if you hope that you'll have some lunch tomorrow, it ain't going to happen unless you go make some lunch tomorrow. You know, so that kind of blind hope is. Yes. However, hopeless. if you believe that there was absolutely no possible way that you could have yep. lunch tomorrow, then, then you, you also yep, wouldn't go exactly. out and make your lunch so, tomorrow. So. The thing is doing something, though. Mm. So doing something Spoken like... Spoken like a scientist. Well, yeah, go and get some bread or do so whatever you need to do to make your lunch tomorrow. Mm. And then as soon as you're doing something, then I don't think it's a despairing thing anymore. You, you I know, totally I agree. That, I agree, too. You yeah. know, so that's why I, I plead with people or I, I say that our, our rent for living on this planet now is to be active, to be activists. Mm. We, all, and, yeah. we all have to be activists, like... No matter, we all have our ways of doing it. We all have our specialities, and it might be tiny little things. It might be huge things, but we all have to do something because just this kind of, you know, selfish looking after yourself and ignoring everything else is and and thinking that's all going to be all right has got us nowhere. Yeah, I really liked what you said before about um, kind of scaling it up in our minds around what the problems are and what we what our response to that needs to be. I think it's like. I mean, it is great to be able to keep it tangible and to look at taking your shopping bag and, and avoiding straws. Yeah. But, but it's also about uh, acknowledging that we're on a journey and that the end destination might not be something that we can achieve tomorrow, but that we need to really focus on it and acknowledge. And it's for a lot of people, it's just beginning that process of acknowledging that actually, mm. holy shit, this is um, epic. Uh, this isn't just a few things on the side, but this is perhaps touching every aspect of my life, mm. and not to sort of just pat yourself on the back uh, mm. until until you have until you've gotten there. And and uh, for me, it's about not beating myself up about knowing that I've got a long way to go at all. It's just about feeling um, that I'm on a journey and that there is a long way to go, but that's okay. Yeah, totally. I completely agree, and you can just get lost in despair if you if you don't do that. And I, the other thing, my other warning is to beware of the weapons of mass distraction, and there's so many of them. And I, I see with kids the response of screens and gaming and stuff like that. They're zoning out, whether it's that or drugs, for many many people, you know, as symptoms of of a really screwed up 
situation we've yeah. got ourselves. It's so, all escapism, isn't it? Yeah, we, we're escaping it because it's so bad, and and you know that's so ironic. Gone, eh? Yeah, so it is. Ironic. It is, and and you see the same result, the same kind of response from government, um, whether it's environmental or social. I mean, I was just so disappointed at this well-being budget, and you know, for example, I will put a whole lot of money into uh, mental health. Well, you can keep throwing money at mental health until you've got no money, and you're not going to you're not going to fix it because you haven't fixed the problem. You know, you're just treating the symptom, and exactly the same with rivers. The other day they announced was it was twelve million dollars to clean up some rivers. What's the point if you you because you know, their idea of cleaning up is to kind of plant the banks or whatever when you're ignoring the cause of the problem, which but, is or, in summary, mostly it's intensification of farming mm. or forestry, you mm. know, and so it's dumb stuff that we do that has secondary effects on rivers and and thinking that you can go and clean it up in the same way that you know you're going to treat mental health while while you're not uh, uh, you know doing anything about the cause, then you're just going to throw money away forever mm. and we mm. until we've got no more money and then go oh well hang on a minute we didn't look at what the cause of this was mm. you know well a semi-hopeful note to end on <laughs> but i think a useful one as about as hopeful as you're going to get from me absolutely <laughs> and it's important to be realistic and that's why we appreciate you so much uh, both coming on the show and all the work that you do mike um communicating and advocating and and being an activist in the most scientific sense of just go Hey, idiots, this is true. We've done the numbers. We've done the math. Um, it is so needed in the world right now, especially, you know, we won't get into all the shit that's going on in America and alternative facts and this whole, um, yeah, sort of, you know, fake news BS that's going on. I think scientists are so important. We need to listen to our scientists. So thank you, Mike, for Cheers. coming on the show. And where, where can people find you and your work online to follow um, you around? On, on Facebook, Dr. Mike Joy and Water Quality nz or one word dot info um lots of information on there on that website fantastic and if you enjoyed this chat please um tell a friend share it around give us a review give us some stars that'd be great uh we'll all spread the world and we will help save the world awesome thanks mike cheers If we have any chance of saving the world, we all need businesses to make changes. And fast. Contact GoWell Consulting to make sure your business is part of the better future. Go to gowellconsulting.co.nz to find an expert that will help your business navigate the journey.